Well, hello everyone and welcome back to another City of Hope Church podcast. This is our small group series. We're currently talking about social renewal. This is part two uh, and we're going to be covering roughly pages 186 through 208 today. This has been a wonderful chapter, Clay. Um, Last week we talked quite a bit about how just things are not how they are ought to be um, we talked about our role as Christians in bringing about social renewal uh, we we ended with talking about how Jesus demonstrates this and gives us an example through his life and this week we're going to be uh, let's just dive right in here we're going to be talking about how he shows that also through his death yes yeah, so he begins a very important part of this on page 187 he sta- he starts by talking about how that Jesus in his death bore our hostilities against one another and on the cross he suffered every oppression that we've ever suffered at the hands of others mm. and this is an interesting thought here he says he, he defines hostility as being fear plus power so it's it's twisted wrongly oriented and wrongly executed power Mm-hmm. And so the whole point that he's basically trying to make, and this is this is what we always talk about since the Garden of Eden, the the, the primary sin of humanity is is this idea that Satan offered us that hey, you can be your own gods, deciding for yourself what is good and evil. Yeah, and that was the you know the initial lie that was offered to us, and we bought into it. And the problem with that is that when we want to be like God or play God. We, we want to call all the shots and be in complete control. And this mm-hmm. is why we get angry sometimes, because we can't control certain people and certain things in certain situations. And when we see something that is opposed to our worldview or our way of life or threatens our way of life or what we want to happen and, and our ability to actually control that, it causes us to be hostile mm-hmm. uh, toward toward people. Toward, and then so, so a lot of times what we'll do when we don't get our way is is we make others certain groups of people less human and and we want to ascend above them to become many gods and yeah. then we form groups to help us protect and solidify our power and so a lot of times what you see i think most clearly we talked a little bit about politics last week and the reason we're talking some about politics is because when you talk about social renewal that's what politics is all about right like the reason we have political parties is is because we're trying to get people in power to run government in such a way that we believe if we do it this way it will cause human flourishing yeah it will cause justice things it will, will be how they should yeah, it will cause righteousness things will be how they ought to be and then what happens is we obviously disagree on those matters and sometimes even when when we disagree and it's sort of smaller low-level disagreements we still see it as as a very big thing and so now we we put people you know into these different and it's really what's funny is we got two major political parties and at this point we are more divided than we have ever been yeah Uh, there are certain certain things i think i preached a message a couple of years ago talking about uh politics in uh spiritual warfare essentially Mm -hmm. the pull of politics what it what it does to us and then and then i i I even showed a a chart where back in the early 90s you know the difference between your median republican or your and your median democrat your basic 
average right person, average left person, well, they weren't that far apart on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were somewhere near the center. Yeah. But now the right went further right and the left went way further left. Yeah. And there's just this deep divide. Now, we all, sh- strangely enough, everybody all shifted left, including the right. So the right even shifted left from that time. But yeah. since then, there was a there 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 was a deeper drive and a wedge. Everything shifted further left, but then there was a deeper divide between the right and the left itself. Do you uh, think that's um, you think that's the majority of folks, or do you think that's like a, a smaller percentage of what actually is there? But it's like the extremes are more elevated. It's what you see, right? Like in, in news and everything else. Everything is always it's you see the extremes of both do you think there's still a lot of folks who would fall in that you know range where there's smaller differences yeah i mean i'm sh- i'm sure there are people but i think so so one of the big things that they'll say about the division that's currently taking place is you know when the internet come in, came into play when social media came into play everybody is on a a constant feedback loop so they get what what you know if you watch you're a right-wing republican and you watch right-wing stuff all the time yeah that's the only stuff you see yeah. over and over and over it's and like over the again. algorithm stuff yeah so it, it strengthens your resolve oh yeah and and the problem with with you know political talking heads is they spend their entire days basically demonizing the other side and what they believe and what they say and maybe even sometimes embellishing what they believe and what they say and it and it actually creates legitimately more hostility yeah. to drive a deeper wedge. And so rather than trying to find a way to bridge that gap, they just demonize the other side, right and left, and and say, well, this this is that, and, and they're always this way, and they're just, the, you know. Yeah. And so it just causes more hatred, more vitriol, more hostility. Yeah. And, and you know, and here's the thing, most everybody that's probably listening to me, because I, I, will, I will agree with you on the fact that if you came to me and you said, now this stuff that's going on, what people believe is crazy, I'd say, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm with you on that. But, but I do think there's an unhealthy level of hostility that we hold toward those that we disagree with, and we do come to a place where we demonize them, and then we label them as this or that rather than trying to see them as an image bearer in God. And so how, how do we navigate the deep fundamental differences that we have with other people, still seeing them as an image bearer of God, still loving them, even though we have clear disagreements, even though they, they potentially stand completely in opposition to what we would believe to be um, you know, godly moral values and stuff like that. Yeah. How how do we wrestle with that? Because one of the, one of the greatest godly moral values that we should have is to love our enemies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, so it's one thing to say, well, they disagree with us on what we think concerning this. Yeah, but are you still continuing to love your enemies, or have you drifted over into a different way of fighting that battle? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think there's some really good points that that he brings up in the book. Um, one thing that stood out to me, Clay, uh, it, it was really interesting, but so you, you, you see this, right? You see a, each group seeking to protect their own powers. They unleash different hostility in different ways. And this kind of culminates in the event of, uh, killing Jesus. And he says here, um, it's not just the winning group that puts Jesus on the cross. It is in fact, all of us, every single one of us wants to play God. 
so all of us put Jesus on the cross for fear that he might really be God. Because if he is God, then he gets a say over our lives, which means we don't have control anymore and we can't live however we want to. We would rather let Jesus die than be forced to step off the thrones of our lives. And in trying to be our own gods, it led us to killing God. Yeah. And he let us do it. Right. And and it's it's just mind-blowing how and that's and he goes on to talk about that. That's why the crucifixion and the death of Jesus that whole process is so uh, violent and so gruesome. It's like the it, it's it's sin at its peak. Yeah, um, the apex of human sin, which is deicide, the the murder of God. Yeah, it is. It's it because and, and like he said, he's, he's saying, look, if if he really is God, that means that he gets to have the say in my life. Yeah, right. And, and therefore, I, do, I I must kill that. Yeah, because I need to remain God. And so what you see is all of these powers converging. And he, t- he talks about how the Romans kill this Jewish man for fear of an uprising and losing their power. Uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders want to kill him for fear of losing their authority over the people who, who some are now supporting. And so every, every single division is bringing that, and he is legitimately becoming the scapegoat. Yeah. They're pouring all of their sin, all of their hostility, all of their anger, all of their rage. Instead of at the things that really are destroying them, they mm-hmm. pour it on the one who has the ability to save them. Yeah. And he becomes that scapegoat uh, for all of us. And it's interesting, and it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to, to wrap your mind around on what is actually taking place there. But but see, that's the thing. All of the hatred, all the animosity that you see, just like like how people, I mean, they, they people legitimately, they hate people, you yeah. know, on, on, different, on the opposing viewpoint, and they label them, and they demonize them, and that is that hostility that is in your heart mm-hmm. that was in full manifestation on the day that Jesus was crucified. And all of that was being poured out on him and he became the scapegoat bearing every last bit of it and that's isaiah 53 we read it so often but it still is is good to hear over and over again he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces he was despised and we held him in low esteem surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by god stricken by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so he just, he bore the full weight mm-hmm. of, of how we mistreat others. And he let us put him to death because the outcome of playing God, as he says, is killing the true God. And she goes on to talk about here um, that the bloodiness of Jesus' death we don't see so much a picture of God's wrath against sin as we do a picture of the consequences of our own sin and brokenness. Mm. Now, I've taught this a lot because if you come from a historical church background, like a Reformed background, penal substitutionary atonement theory is one of the main theories. Because here's the thing. There's a lot of things happening on the cross, right? Yes. And they have different theories as to what was happening. You have penal substitutionary atonement, which basically means... We deserve death and punishment, so Jesus is the substitute taking our death and punishment. And I think there's there's a measure of that happening. 
then there's the Christus Victor, that Jesus is actually defeating the principalities and powers on the cross, which I believe he is doing. And so there's a different way of looking at that because what people will say is the reason that the cross is so horrific is you see the full weight of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. And to me, that seems a little bit slightly unbiblical in, in the sense of like you see God the Father punishing his son. Yeah. What, what I think is more clear biblical, biblically, biblically to me is the wrath of God is being revealed in Romans 1. And here's how it's being revealed, okay? It says that because we did not acknowledge him as God, neither were we thankful, he handed us over. Then we began to manifest certain sins, sexual sins. And because we still didn't acknowledge God as God and we just went into our lust, he handed us over. And then because we continued in that same path and still continued to reject knowledge of God, he once again handed us over to a reprobate mind where we manifested all kinds of this evil. What's happening is, is you see Jesus, a perfectly sinless man, perfectly obedient to the Father in righteousness and holiness and pure love. And each time they wanted to kill him, what happened? He was divinely protected. He'd just pass through and go on. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of sin was placed upon him. He was bearing our iniquities, our hostilities, our hatred toward one another, every sin we'd ever committed in a flesh. It come upon him. His, he's bleeding under the pressure and the weight of that sin as it's placed upon him. And what does Jesus or what does God the Father do in his wrath? He hands, hands him, him over. over. Yeah. And that's what in the book of Acts it says it over and over again. Whom God gave up whom God handed over but you crucified but God raised him up mm. you crucified yeah it didn't say God crucified him y yeah. it says over and over again when they're preaching the gospel Peter and the rest of them they said whom you crucified but God raised him up whom God handed over so you, the, what it, what God's wrath was revealed in him handing Jesus over to the fullness of human sin yeah and you see that rage that anger, that hatred, that hostility, and ultimately his torture and his murder. And when you're handed over to the fullness of human sin, you see all of that nastiness in yeah. the cross. And so it's not so much that when you look at the cross, you are looking at God's wrath in fullness. When you look at the cross, you're looking at the human sin yeah. in its fullness and right. all of its ugliness. Yeah. And then God recycles that in forgiveness because as he's bearing that sin and we're the ones inflicting it on him by beating him he says father forgive them yeah they know not what they're what they do so he absorbs the sin of the world and recycles it in forgiveness he does bear our punishment yes there is a, a substitution there no doubt about it yeah but how you look at god's wrath there i think i think actually um, helps you to see God for who he is because it doesn't say that God is some, somewhere outside of Christ punishing Christ. No, it says God it was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm -hmm. So he is on the cross handing himself over to yeah. his own punishment for sin. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what you see in the world that we live, right? When we, I mean, God offers, offers us a way of life, but when we reject that and do our own thing, what do we see? I mean, you right. see the consequences of our actions, mm -hmm. you know, um, taking place. And, and and God is a, like yeah. we've said it before, he's a perfect gentleman. He's He's not going to just force anything. And yeah. it's a choice you have to make in a, in a way you have to follow like we've been talking about. Yeah, and they say in, this, in the book, everything we've ever done or wanted to do to another human 
we did that to Jesus. Mm. And, um, and Jesus led us. He willingly goes to the cross bearing all of our violence, all of our hostility and our anger and all of our bias, all of our frustration every time we thought somebody was not worth it, not as good as us, that they shouldn't have a right to do that. We put it on him. Jesus bears this on himself. We wanted God to be the victim to submit under our will, and so we asked for his crucifixion. Mm. And it's in the very act of receiving all of our hostility and fear, every whip of our lashes, that Jesus defeats the power of hostility. The victim bears the full weight of the oppressor and then rises again to forgive and love. Jesus bears our hostility and love. And, and, and this is what it says, hostility doesn't get the final word, love does. And so one of the things that is so difficult for us to, to understand is we still want to function under power. We still think that we can change this world by coercing people yeah. and forcing people to do things and submit to me, this is yeah. right, I'm right, yeah. and have that mentality. And what Jesus is clearly saying is that's not what's going to fix the world. What's going to fix the world is self-sacrificial love that's willing to lay down its life for its enemies. Yeah, And that's crazy because in the flesh you feel like, but if I do that, You're nothing's defeated. going to change and yeah. I'll die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you you feel like you're you're being defeated. And in here's that. the thing, you will die, but you'll be raised again from the dead. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? It, yeah. it, you're 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 living for another world. So in this world, if you die by by self-sacrificially loving liberals or Democrats or whoever, like I'm just putting that label on there. Yeah. But if yeah. you say, if you die by self-sacrificially, lo- because here's the thing, I was, I was talking to my dad about this this week, like you know. The way the world's going, it's quite possible. Let's say so. So I, you know, I'm 36 years old here this coming week, and 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 um, and like I got 30 more years of ministry. Let's say until I'm 65, 66. The way the world's going, like in my mind, it's quite possible that I will probably, possibly have to. I may be put to death for preaching what I believe if I stick to it. Yeah. Like it, it, it is a possibility. Yeah. People, people are doing it all over the world. It, people are being put to death in other nations for preaching the gospel all the time. Yeah. It's just not yet come to America. Uh, but, but, but it is quite possible that there is a shift in that just because of the rise in hostility. The question is, how will I respond to that? Will I be like Jesus and be willing to speak the truth in love, even if it costs me my life or will I respond in anger and hostility and hatred and try to rise up and fight? Yeah. And man, that's a tough thing, isn't it? It is because in your flesh, you think it would be right to rise up and fight. Yeah. I mean, can can you imagine the disciples wrestling with this as they saw Jesus be put to death? Because why that he moment, pulled a sword, dude? I mean, yeah. that's why Peter pulled a sword because he's like, "No, we got to fight this because if you die, we lose." Yeah, we're defeated, and it's in that death there's victory, though. Yeah, that's a wild thing to wrestle with. So, I mean, if we can embrace the gospel of self of self sacrificial love of enemies. And let every hostility go, all hatred go, and see even our the greatest of our enemies, the people who are in greatest opposition to us as image bearers of God who are deserving of self-sacrificial love, then we're moving in that direction. And that, right, even when you say it, it rubs up against every stronghold of mental thing, every yeah. thought that you have yeah. about how things should be 
and how things should go. Because yeah. we love the fact that Jesus died for us on the cross, but when he asks us to love our enemies and take up our cross as well, it just feels different. Yeah. Like, he, thank God he died for my sins on the cross, but he doesn't really want me to imitate that. Like, now we're supposed to get political power and control this thing and make yeah make America a righteous nation by force if we must. Right. If we have to take up arms. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, people are gonna be like, "God, oh, this is a weird podcast this week." Like, <laughs> well, it, it's just a, it, it's an upside down kingdom. Mm-hmm. It's an upside down way of thinking, and you can't help but, like you said, to when you, when you experience some of the things that we're experiencing, like you, you want so desperately for there to be change, that it's like, man, we gotta do something. We gotta. We got to fix this, and, and, and you know, like we talked about last week, get the right people in power to make these changes and to make these adjustments so that things can be better. And we want to see yeah. that. And, and I, the way we go about seeing change, it just looks much differently when you look at how Jesus yeah. brought about change. And, and and that being said, let me say this because because I still think that there there is still room for the prophetic voice in our culture. And so, what what I mean by that. If you look at the Old Testament, you had people, Jesus came and and fulfilled all the three roles of Old Testament ministry. He was king, he was prophet, and he was priest. He was those three things. So in the Old Testament, you had king that was ruling the nation. You You had the prophet that would speak the truth of God's word to power. To basically say, no, you guys are functioning in unrighteousness and injustice. And here's what the word of the Lord is. Judgment is coming. And what would happen to all the prophets? They killed them. They killed them all. And, I mean, you know, they sawed Isaiah in half. They they put Jeremiah in the stocks. And he was, was, you know, uh, abused so badly by those in power that he ends up saying, man, I, I wanted to not even preach anymore for God because of the punishment that I was going through. But his word was like a fire shut up in my bones. Mm-hmm. You know, we say that in a Pentecostal service, and it's easy for it to be like a fire shut up in your bones. But what if you're about to preach and you know that it's going to put you in prison, they're going to put you in stocks and torture you then. And then it's a different situation in that particular moment. But all of that being said, uh, we need the prophetic voice in our culture to come out and speak truth to power in these situations. And sometimes that doesn't come off as loving or self-sacrificial, but it is self-sacrificial to be willing to speak the truth in love uh, so that those... So that everyone can know this. This is what God's word says. This mm-hmm. is what he proclaims. And if we reject this, we will bring judgment upon ourselves. And then ultimately point them to Christ who has taken all of this upon himself and offers them a chance for repentance, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because you do want to see social renewal. Yeah. And so we do have to find out. Let's, being loving does not mean that we just cower down and don't say anything. Yeah. Self-sacrificial love doesn't mean that we're just quiet and yeah. soft and... No, it, I think it, mean, it means that we are willing to speak the truth in love, but if need be, we're willing also to lay down our lives for everyone without labeling or holding hostility toward them, but realizing that, hey, Jesus died for them too, no matter how much they disagree with us. But in love, we will speak truth to them in that love, and it's not from a place of anger. Yeah. It's not from a place of hatred. It's from a place of we, Jesus has redeemed us. We are born again. And we have the responsibility to speak prophetically to our culture for social renewal and transformation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's where we miss it sometimes is you see, like with Jesus, you see him saying very difficult things, mm-hmm. calling things out, 
obviously speaking the truth. Yeah. But then you also see how he treats people mm-hmm. with just crazy love. And, and like we talked about again yeah. last week, he's associating with sinners and tax collectors and mm-hmm. uh, young and old and women and, you know, the, all those things. Yeah. And so, and, and, and like with us, it's almost like, well, we feel like, or maybe even the examples that we've seen in others is that the people who do speak truth, where they're just hateful and mean. And the people who are nice and kind and loving to everybody, then they that they won't say the hard things. Yeah. There's rarely that you there's rarely a time when you see both of those like operating how they should be. Yeah. Um, and, and see, so there 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 is a holy dynamic to that because I think sometimes that's where it becomes a little bit blurry uh, in culture. Like, is this right? Is this um, because sometimes if I li- if I listen to political pundits long enough, I just get like a sour note in my soul, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, oh man, the world is an armpit, <laughs> and like, yeah. how are we gonna get out? And uh, but then there's also things that I see happening in our culture, and sometimes if you'll notice, I'll preach a sermon that has just been boiling in me, yeah. and as bad as I hate to get up and say it, I just have to get up and say it, and it truly is from a place of love, but it seems strong. But then you see Jesus like confronting the religious leaders and confronting the powers of his day and even saying, hey, you brood of vipers. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a, a moment where he steps into that prophetic calling. And that's ultimately what got him killed like the rest of the prophets is he, he spoke truth to power. John the Baptist did the same thing and was beheaded for it. Uh, yeah. So there, part of our ministry is to speak truth to power, and even when it is a little bit abrasive, ultimately it's out of a place of love yeah. because we're trying to find a way to wake you up to this reality in hopes that, that you too could come to a place of, of repentance and to the knowledge of the truth. So, you know, all that stuff is difficult. The only way we can navigate forward through all of it is by the power of the Holy Spirit who helps us yeah. because there there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak boldly. And ultimately, it has to be somehow done from a place of love because we still want to see uh, social renewal. And even though we're not sure whether or not this nation can be transformed back to what God wants for it completely, we have to pursue, you know, we have to pursue in our communities as if as if mm-hmm. that's what God's going to do. Yeah, for sure. Like he's going to make Manchester, he's going to make Clay County, he's going to make southeastern Kentucky or even the United States and the world mm-hmm. uh, to be renewed into the image of how he designed it to be because he will one day. And so we, we're, we're supposed to be pursuing that in the here and now regardless. Yeah. And one of the most appealing things and the most beautiful things about the Christian life is that in the middle of all this, um, y- you have – you know, things are, you know, quote unquote, going going south. And, you know, there is all this stuff that kind of it aggravates us and it saddens us and it it grieves us. But at the same time, in the middle of the darkness and in the middle of the trial, when you are walking with Jesus, there's still a peace and a hope that we have that gets us through that and even makes even you know life feels the way it should even despite the the trials Mm -hmm. you know not that trials are they're never going to be easy but with jesus i mean man you have a you have a friend that sticks closer than the brother you know you have a god and a light and a like i said you know just to just to lay down at night and have hope is a is a powerful thing but uh but yeah it's you know 
he goes into a section here on page 191. You know, he tore down the walls. You know, through his death, um, there is no more barriers between us and God. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And because of his death, there is no more separation between us and God. No more separations between us and one another. And Jesus accomplished that through his death. Yeah. Jesus was out among the unclean of society. He was among criminals, hung among criminals, hung between thieves. Uh, He's unclean outside the camp, covered in blood. But then metaphorically, he enters back into the temple offering his his blood for each division in humanity that there is and that's you know that's why when that veil was torn from top to bottom like you said um basically he's he's bringing it's 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 not about whether you're male or female whether you're black or white whether you're jew or gentile whether you're slave or free anymore these are all secondary issues peripheral issues because in christ jesus we have all become a new humanity and we're no longer judged on externals. We're no longer judged the way that the world judges. We don't look at the flesh, as Paul says, because all of those things have been put to death. Mm-hmm. All the all the divisions, all the differences, that's no longer who we are because our new identity is first and foremost a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. And then our gender comes second and our, our ethnicity comes second, our yeah. age comes second, all of those things are different. But then when we look at other people, we don't judge them based on their socioeconomic status, how much money they make, uh, what color they are, how old they are. Each person in our church is first and foremost a beloved, holy, called, cherished child of God who's destined to bear God's image and to steward and exercise dominion over the earth. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we want to begin to look at people and see that when Jesus died on the cross, he tore away all of those things that would cause us to divide. And yes, we are different. Yes, we do think differently. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is doing a work, especially in people in church, because when people get saved, they come from various backgrounds, and they may still be holding on to some differences that are biblical or not biblical or whatever uh but the holy spirit is forming us into a new humanity a new nation and a new family and so that we can all be a a new temple in christ and all the old divisions are long gone Mm -hmm. and there's a completely new humanity and that's where social renewal begins when we start to live from that place as a new humanity yeah and that's actually part of the book here it says living as the new humanity and uh, so basically, it's, he's trying to say, well, how do you live this out? Um, one of the interesting things that he says on 197 is that the early church created a public affirmation of their new identity in Christ by adopting Galatians 3, 26 and 28 as their baptismal liturgy. Uh, when a person first became a disciple of Jesus and chose to enter the waters of baptism, they would say this liturgy as a way of acknowledging that they were leaving their old identity behind and instead taking on new identity as a child of God and a disciple of Jesus. And so for them, that was a big thing because more than ever, back in their day, it mattered whether mm-hmm. you were Jew or Gentile. Yeah. It mattered whether you were slave or free. It mattered whether you had a religious pedigree. Yeah. All of those things were a big deal. Uh, today, some of those things are a big deal, but nobody actually labels them specifically. We look more at like what car you drive, how big your house is, what kind of job you have. Yeah. And we look to 
indicators like that because we're materialistic. Yeah. Uh, so we don't necessarily look at pedigrees, but we might on some level. Well, what family did you come from? Or maybe you've got a, a a name in the community, or you come from a political background where your family had some power or something like that. Oh, uh, but then maybe you came from a background where your family was just on drugs and y'all yeah. were white trash, you know. Yeah. And people sort of la- subconsciously label others yeah. in the, in those ways. Yeah, for sure. And um, and so those are things where it's saying, oh, no, no, no. All of that falls to the ground in Christ. Yeah. And in the baptismal waters, they're no longer there. I was listening to something the other day, and this is sort of not necessarily in, in context, but it's interesting to me. So the early church, when it came to baptism, they would take their new converts through like one to two years of, of catechesis, which is just like training. Uh, biblical training so they teach them to pray and fast and you know seek God and under, get an understanding of the scriptures and theology of who Christ is and who they are in Christ before they were baptized mm. so if they got saved they would have to pass through two years of training in order to be baptized Yeah, because they wanted to know hey they want them to know hey you're getting into something here and, and right. we, we want to know that you know what it means to be a Christian uh, before you enter into this covenant and you don't take it lightly. So that they believe that if they died during that two-year process, obviously they're saved because their baptism wasn't, wasn't, wasn't what saved them, even though it is an aspect of their salvation. Yeah. But, but for them, that baptism was something that was so such a big deal that it wasn't like, hey, you could just say a prayer, oh, well, we'll baptize you tomorrow. The, yeah. They felt differently about it, uh, which is something I think we should at least take into consideration and thought. Yeah. I think it's fine that we do baptize people when they get saved, but it's but it's so important that you know, if we don't if we don't do it before they're baptized, we we got to figure out ways to consistently get them to understand the importance of continuing their walk. Yeah. Uh, Cuz that we baptize so many kids, man, and that's something we take I think we we take it pretty lightly, honestly, like yeah. you said. I think we as the church could really serve to be more intentional about like a, a real uh you know training of sorts as far as leading people and that's something honestly i wrestled a long time with with my son yeah because he got baptized when actually on his seventh birthday and it was several months of him asking questions and hey i want to be saved you know asking jesus into my heart and i had multiple conversations with you it was just like it's because it's something I just didn't want to like. Oh, here, baptized, you know, yeah. and then it just be. Um, yeah, I wanted it to be serious. I wanted yeah. him to really understand what he was doing. And of course, as a seven-year-old, there's a lot that he's not going to understand. Right, and and like we we you know we come to the conclusion that you know if he if he's a believer and professes Christ and has has an understanding of the gospel, there's nothing I th- I think in Scripture that forbids us from baptizing a child who asked for it because perhaps it would cause more damage if you didn't. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But, but the key is that we, we come to the conclusion of if this, if this child is going to be baptized, it is your responsibility yes. as a covenantal parent to make sure that they always know what that baptism means yeah. and who they are in Christ. Yeah. No, they can't forget it and come back, you know, at 22 years old and be like, well, I did that at seven, but I had no idea. You know, yeah. they need to know throughout those years because I think what happens is, is it's a cool little token thing. Well, my kid said a prayer and they got saved. Let's baptize them. And then you don't raise them as a disciple. Yeah. And, and, and that could be, that could be problematic in the future because it confuses people. 
Um, anyway, all that being said, we're kind of at the place where uh, he's talking about, uh, it says Philip Yancey describes the early church in this way. The, er- the earliest Christians broke down barriers. Unlike most other religions, Christians welcomed men and women alike. The Greeks excluded slaves from most social groupings, while Christians included them. The Jewish temple separated worshipers by race and gender. Christians brought them together around the Lord's table. In contrast to Rome's most male aristocracy, mostly male aristocracy, the Christian church let women and the poor take leadership roles. The Apostle Paul waxed eloquent on the mystery which was for ages past kept hidden in God. God's intent, said Paul, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. By forming a community out of diverse members, we have the opportunity to capture the attention of the world and even the supernatural world beyond. Mm. And um, so forming this new humanity from a diverse community is, is, is quite essential. And I think one of the things, you know, especially in the early church, when they met together, they would have the Lord's Supper and they would take communion together. But they called it they called it a love feast. So, but what you saw were literally in a room around a big table, gathering together and eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ corporately, were l- slaves, the outcast, but also religious leader like you know jew mm-hmm. jewish converts that were pharisees um the elite wealthy people like all people from all backgrounds young and old all diversity ethnicities now jews and gentiles which never met together samaritans who weren't able to eat with jews all of a sudden in the same room drinking the body and blood of the lord jesus yeah and and all of that stuff broken down and them loving one another calling it a love feast and drinking the body and blood of the Lord Jesus together on 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 that same playing field with no division, the world around them looked and said, "Man, how's this possible?" Yeah, and that's where that's where social renewal uh, really begins, and we're in that already not yet of like us loving one another that way, even in our own church. How do we how do we learn to love one another that way in our own church and in our own communities uh, and, and grow in that to the to the best of our ability? One of the things that they'll say here, and I really like it, is it begins with a few because you can always think on like a meta, a meta level, mm-hmm. and be like, "Man, how do you change the world like this?" And it can be so overwhelming, it's just daunting. Yes, yeah. but if you say, if you think on a micro level, and you think more like Jesus had twelve disciples that he dealt with and taught this, like in our small groups, if we just love, we can start by loving the people in our small groups well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And inviting outsiders into our lives, uh, just the people around us, and and letting that spread as much as it can just within our local communities yeah. is, is the way to start. And we, we connect with people, people that disagree with us. And see, so, so he gives action steps at the very end of this, and this is probably, like, the best part of it. You know, see, I preached a message on homosexuality recently. And one of the things that I wanted to do before I preached a message on that was I wanted to know that I've at least listened to some people who have been through this stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So so I, I have, over the course of several years, sat down and had conversations with people who would be willing to have conversations with me because I wanted to hear them out. And, um, and 
and and let them speak to me about what I didn't know, what I didn't see, etc. Because you want to listen and and hear where people are coming from. Yeah. I mean, I've had conversations with hardcore people who believed differently than me politically. Yeah. You know, uh, it would be unusual. But I had a I had a man coming to me. Y'all aren't gonna believe this. Some people will be like, Oh my gosh. Because uh, I just know the way people think politically around here. But I had a person who has always been a pretty hardcore Democrat, and he asked me with all sincerity and said, Clay, I just don't understand. How is it that so many Christians tend to vote Republican? Mm-hmm. Because from his point of view, the Democrats were, were a more loving Christ-like. That was just how he saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to, I, I, you know, went through that and wanted to know what, how he thought, why he thought that. And then I told him, well, here's, here's why I think that they don't tend to vote Democrat because these are some major moral issues that sort of stand in the face of, uh, of what Christians believe. And, uh, and so they see that as a threat to their way of life, uh, to, to go in that direction, but to, but to listen you know what I'm saying? Just first yeah. hear out why people think the way they do. Then grieve with them. Uh, confess what you've believed and what you know, what sins that you've dealt with and repent where you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then but then it's a call to repentance from both sides and then and then ultimately you seek transformation. Um but Yeah, that I was I'll tell you even before the podcast, um I heard this another podcast that was talking about these people, um, and, and their their word for love in terms of what love meant was understand. To understand someone yeah. is to love them. Yeah. And I think you know this this kind of hits hits that is when yeah. you begin to at least again you're not accepting or like agreeing with even or like conforming to a different viewpoint or whatever, but just to be able to understand somebody and have a conversation. Even though you, at the end of the day, you may com- be completely opposite sides on the way you believe. Mm-hmm. If you at least hear a person out, talk to them, understand them, it you see them differently. It's not, and when you, and then, and I think because of that, then you go on to preach a message like on homosexuality or some type of other really hard topic because you've spent time with people uh, who who felt differently or believed differently. You're able to approach that from the right heart yeah it's not yes you're speaking truth and you're 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 declaring the god's word but you're doing in a way that's not yeah you're not hateful and you're not mean and you i mean you you, you do it from a place of actually understanding where everybody comes from and their their point of view and it is it, it is far more hard to be hateful and angry when you're sitting across the table from somebody looking look at them in the eyes. Yeah. But if you just have a caricature that you've developed because you've been listening to the news a lot, well, mm. it's easy to hate that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's easy to hate that. And it's easy to hate. I mean, there's certain ideologies that I would venture to say that I'd, I, rob, I probably hate them. Yeah. Like I just see it as diametrically opposed to the truth and demonic in nature. And I hate that demonic thing yeah. now there are many people that are under the influence of that demonic ideology but somewhere i have to be able to separate the person made in the image of god that is currently under the sway of the yes. wicked one yeah which is why paul says i think it's in in uh second timothy 2 he says look the servant of the lord must be gentle patient mm-hmm. able to teach and 
able to instruct those who are in opposition to themselves that perhaps through this instruction and gentleness and patience and teaching them, God will eventually give them a place of repentance so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved and 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 get free from this literally being held captive yeah. under under Satan's will. Yeah. And that's what he says. So so we come, we don't quarrel. Servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle, patient, able to teach, instructing those who oppose themselves so that they could come to the knowledge of the truth, repent, and be set free. Yeah. And and that's where we're at. That's where social renewal begins, I think, on on base level. Yeah. I'd like to read just one thing in closing here. It says, Together we can create a community that is a beautiful example to the rest of the world of what unity and social renewal looks like. Together, by the grace of God, we can become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2, nine. So, we have something to celebrate, um, and and we we have an example to set. I love what it says there. We can be a community that's an example to the rest of the world, and so yeah, and it starts with some of these these things we've been talking about. But uh, yeah, good stuff, Clay. It's a good chapter. Any other thoughts in closing? I believe that's good. All righty, guys. Well, we love you so much. We appreciate you. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. We'll talk to you on the next one.